James chapter 1. Real Christianity. This is how real Christians think and live. One of the things real Christians do is they deal with temptation differently and successfully. We're in verse 13. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to turn over to Proverbs 7. Let no one say, here's what a real Christian does. They don't blame God as the source for their temptations. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That would be a wrong statement because God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself, this is a key statement, does not tempt anyone. The source of temptation is not God ever. There's never an event in life, although he controls them all, that's designed to cause you to stumble as a follower of Christ. It's, it would be adversarial to his nature, verse 17, he's a good gift giver, and it would be adversarial to his purposes. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought you forth by the word of truth so that you might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. You would be the evidence of his purposeful creation for his glory. So leading you into temptation would be adversarial to that divine intention. So where does it come from? Verse 14, here's the source. Each one, there's no exceptions and no exclusions, every temptation, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The source of temptation is your own strong desire. Now, I I don't prefer the word lust because it always implies a negative kind of passion. This is strong passion. You're hungry. It may be leveraged, that passion, in terms of its seeking of satisfaction in an ugly, dishonoring way, but the appetite is human. It's natural. Epithumia, it's just strong desire. It's used in other places of being really hungry, really needy. Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew 4, became hungry after 40 days of fasting, and then he was tempted. The hunger in the heart, the hunger of the body, inward passion is the source, the first source potential for temptation. Everyone is tempted originating source from his own desire. So the first thing you need to know, understand about temptation, and these are the steps, it starts with a desire, a hunger of the heart. Hungry heart, inward human hunger, driven for satisfaction. That's where it starts. And then the enemy and the cosmos, the system designed by the enemy, amplifies that hunger with options for solutions that are not God-honoring and are destructive, not constructive. That's how it works. So therefore, steps of temptation. Number one, you're drawn. After the desire emerges, you're drawn. See what it says, verse 14. You're drawn. You're carried away. That's drawn, taken in tow by your desires. You have an independent search for satisfaction because hungry people eat. You're drawn And then you're deceived, that's the word, and enticed. Those phrases modify the word tempted. So you're drawn and enticed. I'm going to use the word deceived because enticed is a a word which is a hunting and fishing term, baited by a lure. So there's a hook in it. It's not real food. It's 
artificial. It's a temptation. So you're drawn, you're deceived because of a desire, you're out searching. Then you make a decision. Verse 15, when lust, that's the desire, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. The desire and your will conceive. Two entities come together in a decision. I'm hungry. I'm cruising, seeking satisfaction. An option emerges, an enticement, a bait emerges. A hook covered by an option provided by the enemy or by the world in which I live or it's my own self-deception. I'm going to find a solution and I make a decision. The destructive option and my willful decision is the conception. Now, someone emailed me last week and said, so temptation isn't sin? No, it isn't sin. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without what? Sin. Martin Luther used to say, you can't keep the birds of temptation from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest there. Temptation is not sin. Inward hunger that causes you to seek satisfaction is not sin. The baited lure is not something that is sin. It's a destructive option. It's when your will and the lore and the passion come together, that conception brings forth, like a mother in childbirth, sin. Verse 15. And when sin is accomplished, okay, when it reaches its full-orbed effect, it brings forth what? Death. Sin always brings forth death. So the steps of temptation, you have a desire, you're drawn, taken in tow by your desires, you're deceived, baited by a lure, there's a decision, conception, union of your desire and will, then there's disobedience, that's sin, self-satisfaction, not according to God's purposes and plan. Remember, God's always good, so if he says don't do it as a means of gratification, it's not good for you to do for his glory and for you. No temptation satisfied outside of the will of God has the promise of true satisfaction or lasting satisfaction. That's the lie. This bait, if I take it, will meet my need when in fact it will not meet my need. It will bring forth death. I'm hooked. That's the lie. And that's how temptation works. Verse 16, do not be deceived. It's not God, comes from me. This option enticing me is no option. And if I take it by a decision of my will, no matter what the self-gratifying option is, if it's outside of the bounds of God's prescriptive will, yes, you should, Harry, or no, you shouldn't, it brings forth sin, and that's disobedience. And that brings forth death. How many times does that happen? Every time you disobey, sin brings forth death. Now, no, I'm not saying death in the grave. Some sin will kill you. But all sin is deadly spiritually. It separates you from God. And then all the cumulative effects of sin. That's the steps. 
So what's the strategy? First strategy I offered you last week was observation. If you're going to triumph over temptation, you've got to get your head up and your eyes open so that you can be un- you can understand the wiles of the enemy and the deceptions of your own flesh. You look at flesh game film. And you make observations about how your enemy, whether it's the self-deception, the enemy's deception, or the world's deception, invites you into failure. You look at life and you learn. That's observation. And that's John Owen's starting point in his book, Temptation and, and Sin, Mortification of the Flesh. You start by evaluating and assessing past failures. Proverbs chapter 7. Let's jump back there because that's where we landed. So that's kind of the contextual setup. So why are we in Proverbs 7? Because Proverbs 7 is the biggest illustration, observation illustration inspired by God about how temptation works. It's a morality play. It's a father talking to a son. It's a dad saying to a son, hey, Stay out of harm's way. This is the longest extended passage I know of in the Bible that results in a conception of sin which brings forth death. All of the James 1 components are housed in this illustration. We could all tell stories, but this is an inspired story. All sin brings forth death, and sin is the result of temptation, and temptation happens this way. Here's how to avoid it, by observing and understanding it. That's the force of this text. The first five verses, which we covered last week, involve the prevention of moral failure. How can I avoid this? That's the first five verses. I'm going to read them. We studied them. We're going to jump in then to the question precipitated by verse 5. My son... Keep my words, which means store them like treasure, the next phrase, in my, store my commandments in you, within you. Treasure my commandments within you. So that keep means store it, memorize it. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that. Verse 2, keep my commandments and live. Not just doing, knowing it, it's doing it. And my teaching is the apple of your eye, a figure of speech to say, make it a precious priority around which your life revolves. Verse 3, bind them on your fingers, these words, these commandments coming from the word of God as a parent teaches children, bind them on your fingers. Put them in a place where you're constantly seeing them, reviewing them. Write them on the tablet of your heart unforgettably. Say to wisdom, verse 4, wisdom comes from the commandments and the truths, same principle we saw in chapter 23, truth gives birth to wisdom when truth is applied. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call understanding again, which comes from the truth, your intimate friend. Build an intimate relationship with the words of God so that you can live in a way that honors God. So you memorize it, you prioritize it, you review it, and you build a relationship with it. That's the way I would say it. Verse 5, that they, that's the words, may keep you, that's protect you, from an adulteress. The word keep is like sentries. They're like guards. 
So here comes the enemy called temptation. An assault is being made on your heart. And here's a promise, father to a son. There is a protective force that will insulate you from failure in this way if deployed. And it involves the words of God as gifted you by your parents telling you the truth about God's will and way. And when those words are taken in, when those words are lived out, when you prioritize your life around those central truths, when you put them in places where you won't forget them, you're constantly interacting with them, being reminded of them, living your life aligned with them. When you build an intimate relationship with them so that God's words are your friends, your closest relationships spiritually begin with the words of God gifted to you. They, they'll keep you. You don't have to fight the same battle. Listen, it's better, it's why the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Keep me out of harm's way. This is a way. You pray and you let the Word of God be the centerpiece of your life. And I ended last week by saying, in what ways does the Word of God protect you? Because good people who do bad things, and this is another kind of axiomatic statement, no Christian, no good person intentionally destroys their life morally. Oh, I think I'll go sin today so I can fall into death and destruction. Who makes that decision? Not intentionally, but we end up there because some things happen to us. We don't apply the truths of wisdom supplied to us. One of those truths is the Word of God will protect you from failures morally, spiritually, as it relates to the desires you have in your humanity. It'll protect you. An ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. So in what way does the Word of God help you? How does it protect you? What is the the ingredient that it supplies? I'm going to give you three. Number one, the Word of God warns you. It warns you. J.I. Packer, an educated, sensitive conscience, is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do. The conscience forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility. It makes us feel guilt, shame, and fear of the future retribution that it tells us we deserve when we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints. Satan's strategy is to corrupt Listen to this, desensitize and possibly kill our consciences. Listen, the gift you have is the law of God written in your heart that is designed to protect you. And when you amplify the law of God written in your heart, your conscience, with the truths of God's word, which mature your conscience, sensitizes your conscience, you have a great asset. It is a warning system so that when you're in harm's way, your conscience works because the Word of God has strengthened the law of God written in your heart. Pull up, pull up, pull up. Don't go. Say no. This is an old illustration, but it's a true one. 1984, Avianca Airlines had a plane fly into a mountain in Spain. Everybody died. When they recovered the black box, which was not destroyed by the accident, 
they heard an electronic synthesized voice. The pilot's voice and the electronic voice of the warning system. And the warning system, the altimeter, which is how high are you, was saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. The pilot's voice, shut up, gringo, shut up. And then he switched the warning system off. Now, nobody knows why a pilot would choose to do that. But ignoring that warning resulted in his death and everyone entrusted to him on that airliner. That's what we do when our conscience warns us, informed by the words of God, it is designed to protect us. That's why Psalm 19 reads this way. The word of God is more precious than gold, than much fine gold. The word of God is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Do you know what the next statement is? And by it, the words of God, your servant is warned. Hey, listen, Sri Lanka, Easter Sunday, remember what happened? Bombings happened. Churches, three of them, coordinated attacks in Sri Lanka just a few weeks ago. People died in an assault, an organized assault of ISIS. That's tragic. Let me tell you, what would a warning have been worth to those groups of people? Do you know that there had been indicators and communications prior to those attacks that an attack was being planned and was imminent? Some of the authorities in Sri Lanka are in trouble today because they did not heed the warnings. It's like, shut up, gringo, shut up. What is a warning worth? If you knew there was an assault on our church today, there would be an assault on you, a deadly assault. What would that warning be worth to you? You know what it's worth. It's priceless. That's what the Bible is, because you're potentially today even going to be exposed to spiritual assault. And these are warnings. The Word of God is a warning system. I, uh, one of my favorite John MacArthur quotes, where you have no knowledge, you have no conviction. Where you have no conviction, you have no conscience. And where you have no conscience, you have no sanctification. That list starts with knowledge. That's the words of God. And the convictions from those words are the means to educate a conscience that is meant to protect you. It will warn you. Listen to it, inform it, and let the word of God keep your heart sensitive. Every person who fumbles the ball morally neglects the word of God. They become weak in the word of God. They ignore it. They get calloused because of it. And they make decisions with a, whole, with a cold, callous conscience. They ignore it or they say, shut up to it, and it results in catastrophic loss. So you have a desire. Out you go, hungry. An opportunity comes. You need a warning system. Listen, Satan is our enemy is a deceiver. I can deceive myself 
but he is an ancient deceiver. He is called the deceiver. He is called Apollyon, your enemy and destroyer. And everything he promotes, whether it was Jesus in the wilderness or Jesus in the garden, is designed to woo you away from something that honors God and destroys your soul. Listen to your conscience informed by the word of God. If that makes sense, will you say amen? That's why good people do bad things. They neglect the word of God, which is designed to warn you when you are threatened by the assault of the liar and the deceptions of your flesh. There's a second thing the Bible does. It satisfies. It doesn't just warn. It satisfies. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. God's word is not only a protector, it's a soul satisfier. This is Psalm 63. My soul, David said, is satisfied as with the richest of food when I meditate on thee, O God, in the night watches. The word of God is a soul satisfier. I've desired your word more than my necessary food, is what Job said. When you feast on the word of God, you get real soul food. And temptation is the product of what? Unmet desire. I've said this, I'm going to keep saying this, hungry people eat. It is not that you won't satisfy that desire. You will. You either quench it the right way, satisfy it the right way, or you satisfy it the wrong way to your own destruction. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 27. Well, before you do that, go back with me to Hebrews chapter 11, or 12, rather. I'll get us there. Now, listen, I'm, I, I never get to teach this in three Sundays, so you're getting the extra deluxe long-range edition. So forgive me if I'm digging a little deeper today, but I, the person who's speaking you to you today is absolutely convinced it's the greatest battle of your life. It's the greatest battle of your life and the people you care about, and that is moral integrity. Most of us are going to fumble. Statistically, over 50% of us are going to fumble the ball. And that says nothing about the kind of the unknown ways we fumble. So this is a big deal. And if you understand how it works, you can prevent it. This is preventative. Lord, keep me out of temptation. One of the ways I stay out of it is I fuel and satisfy my hunger the way God designed my hunger to be satisfied. First and foremost, through his word. Because immoral people are hungry people who are not satisfied. You see that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. Let there be no immoral, which is interesting, because I wouldn't have called this guy immoral. I would have called him godless. Let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Now, look at the descriptive phrase that commentates on immoral godlessness. Here's the descriptor, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. 
Verse 17, for you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, which went with the birthright, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So here's the subject. Turn back to Genesis 25, and I'm going to show you Esau, godless, immoral Esau. What was his problem? Sold something super valuable, his birthright, his possession, all of the privileges and blessing attached to his identity as the elder son. And he traded something of great value at low cost because of a desperate hunger which caused him to believe that without this gratification, I'm going to die. That, I will argue, is the epitome of immorality and the mindset that gets us in destructive trouble. I'm hungry, and I trade a lot for a little. I undervalue my privileged place and the blessings by God attached to it, and I trade it away for an immediate gratification because I feel like if I don't fix this, I'm not going to survive. Watch the flavor of Genesis 25. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, this is Esau and Jacob. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. So one's inside, one's outside. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. That's Isaac liked game food. And Rebekah loved Jacob. Verse 29, and when Jacob had cooked stew, I'm reading the New American Standard, Esau came in from the field and he was what? Famished. You know what famished is? Really, really hungry. He was saying, this is what your kids say, I'm starving. I'm going to die if you don't feed me. (laughs) Verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of, I love this, that red stuff. He doesn't even know what it is. He's so hungry, he doesn't care what's in it. Please give me a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am, what? Famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom because it's red. Verse 31, but Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Now, listen, this was a big, big thing to ask. Birthright meant double blessing. Birthright meant leadership in the family. Birthright meant I had incredible privileges because of my position, high privilege as a precious son and all of the double blessings attached to it. So give me that. You want food? Give me that. Now listen to what he says, 32. And Esau said, behold, I'm about to what? Die. Now look, you could argue that I guess there's a chance But it's not about reality. It's about the perception of reality. I'm going to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? I'm going to argue this is probably the prototypical example of what happens in the transaction when we give in to temptation. What use is my relationship with God and all the blessing attached and attracted to me from God because of my virtue and my honor. God wants to bless you. He wants to supply immeasurably as a son 
of the Most High God, a joint heir with Jesus, all heavenly blessings are assigned to you as gifted by his wisdom and your need, and you trade that away because you feel like if I don't satisfy this appetite, I'm going to die. I'm going to cheat in this way. I'm going to satisfy and gratify this desire with this click on my computer. I'm going to say yes when I should say no, because I don't know that what he's promised and who I am because of his promise is sufficient for me. I'll take the red stuff. See how it works? Turn over to Proverbs chapter 27. I'll give you another proverbial nugget that I think is helpful, all under the I'm not going to make it if I don't eat. I'm going to trade a lot for a little. Why? Because I'm hungry. Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor, has written a sermon and uh, a book that I have called There is an Expulsive Power, Expulsive, an Expelling Power of a New and Greater Affection. It's his way of saying, listen, if I secure life and satisfaction in the ways that are truly satisfying, it has an expulsive, expelling power that I don't want what is offered to me because I have a satisfied, I have a greater and new affection. I want something different than I used to want, and I'm gratified in the securing of that through the word of God and the person of Christ. Proverbs 27, verse 7. Wisdom from heaven. A sated man. That's what the New American Standard said. Anybody else have a different translation? Satisfied. Okay, sated is saturated. Sated man is, I can't eat another bite. After Thanksgiving meal man. Okay? A satiated man, look at what it says, loathes. Do you know what loath means? Repulsed by. I'm going to throw up. A sated man loathes what? Honey. Now, honey in the Hebrew Old Testament is a illustration metaphor of the best delicacy, the sweetest food, the most satisfying. If this was Harry's translation, the sated man loathes Krispy Kremes which is my favorite food group. I think I've told you that. When I retired from my church in Alabama, they held a reception. They had 45 dozen Krispy Kremes from down the street. They had a pyramid in the middle of the room, all the way to the ceiling. The ceiling was this tall, table all the way to the top, glazed donuts. It was the perfect kind of reception. What would it take for me to find a Krispy Kreme loathsome? because I'm already full. I'm so full that even the sweetest satisfaction normatively to me is loathsome to me. It's when they bring out the pecan pie too early after Thanksgiving meal or pumpkin or whatever your family does by way of tradition. I, I can't eat it. If I eat that, I'll throw up. The sated man loathes something normatively gratifying. But watch the rest of the Proverbs. But to a hungry man, we would read the word famished man. 
any bitter thing is what? Sweet. Rice cakes look good. (laughs) Peas look good. Red stew looks good, the red stuff. You know why? Because you're starving. Let me tell you why we commit immorality. We're starving. We don't have a sanctifying, satisfying relationship. That's Proverbs chapter 5. We can look at that another day, but basically Proverbs 5 says, don't chase satisfaction in the street. Find satisfaction at home. Let the wife of your youth intoxicate you with her love. Seek satisfaction in the prescribed places that God provides. Healthy homes and marriages are a provision and blessing of God that need to be supporting the desires, human, of the heart. And the Word of God, soul food, is the means that God provides when other provisions aren't available. Because sometimes life happens. People get sick. People are out of town. Relationships get broken. Distance happens. You're hungry. You want intimacy. You want longing. You want satisfaction. What will preserve and protect if that's not available? Soulish satisfaction where God's word will take care of my heart and fuel me in a way that makes me repulsed by what would be potentially attractive. But let me get hungry in my heart. You walk on by with any bitter thing. And where am I headed? Just like my dachshund puppy does. Wherever that food stuff goes, she goes. She eats things that... Ah, Never mind, that's not a good illustration. (laughs) You understand. That's people who do not find satisfaction in the word of God. The word of God will protect you, and the word of God will satisfy you. And thirdly, the word of God will sanctify you. Jesus, high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Your word is truth. You know what sanctify means? Give you a bath spiritually. Wash the toxins away. It's what husbands do for wives. They wash her through the water of the word. Part of the reason, and uh, I appreciate the reminder to read James, because the word of God has a sanctifying effect in your home. And if you're a smart husband, you're reading the Bible to your wife and family. And you're doing it every day because every day is I get dirty in the world day. And the word of God has a sanctifying washing effect. So saturate yourself in the scripture. Bathe in the Bible and establish your conscience through the words of God that is the warning system that will keep you from taking the bait and give that gift to your family. Give that gift to your children. Honor and integrity and virtue invites the blessing of God and the blessing of your children. Can you say amen to that? All right, you can see we're tracking fast. I can't believe how much ground we're covering. We got a whole chapter to cover next week. So show up, eat fast, and we'll get started. I hope you have a super Mother's Day. I hope you will have a memorable moment with your mother where you can say thank you and make a promise 
That'll bless her soul. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for what it means. Thank you for the provisions of grace that you have gifted to us in your word. It is soul food. Help us to eat so that the things that are sweet are loathsome. In Jesus' name, amen.